Welcome to AIs and with Andrew and Jen, a podcast where a designer and a data scientist break it down and duke it out over how to create awesome AI experiences. So, hey everyone, welcome back to AIs and Andrew and Jen. And today I have some questions for Andrew. And I'm going to set this up since um, you may or may not know Andrew's a data scientist. I'm a designer, and we're trying to learn from each other about the best way to make these AI systems work. So I had an experience recently. We did an AI hackathon at my company, and I thought it would be a really cool idea to quickly make a chat bot uh, that you know, you could plug right into Slack and we had a whole channel for this like uh, DJ bot that could answer all the questions that I didn't want to have to answer because I was the person that set up the hackathon and I knew like 500 people were going to have a lot of questions afterwards. So I put as many answers as I thought would be asked into this little bot system and um, it did not work very well. And then I didn't really have a good plan for uh, like quickly adapting it other than like furiously rewriting things. And that's kind of maybe an example of mistakes that happen that we don't really think about when we're designing things right now, because maybe we haven't done it a lot and we haven't seen things go wrong. So today, all that said, Andrew and I are going to talk about um, mistakes and what we can do about them. And I just wanted to start off with a question, which is, Andrew, what's a mistake what do you mean by mistake? What does it mean to you? Great question, Jen. So I think even in terms of accuracy, um, when people are building an AI model, they typically want to know how accurate is it. And they think in terms of, did the model do the right thing or the wrong thing? Because I, I obviously want my model to always do the right thing. I want it to be very highly accurate because that's why I'm investing all this money in AI. So, so Jen, let me ask you a question. What's a system you've interacted with that tries to be very accurate. Um, my favorite example is my spam filter. Great. So let's think about the, uh, the, the how a spam filter works then. Okay. So a, a spam filter, a message comes in, and you want to see is it spam or is it not spam, right? It's a simple decision. There's two choices, and um, you can say it's spam. You can say it's not spam. That's it, right? So we know uh, the volume of spam has greatly reduced uh, in the past several years, right? It's partially because filters are getting very good, but also partially because we've identified the places that are sending it and we're just shutting them down, hmm. right? So so let's think about the, the, the simplest way to think about accuracy. Um, did my filter do the right thing or the wrong thing? Uh, so the, the very simplest thing I can do is I can say, look, when a message comes in, it's not spam. Uh, turns out this is a very naive implementation. It's very simple, but it's also a baseline uh, that you you want to compare any model against, right? Because if it turns out that look, it, legitimately nine out of ten messages are not spam, then a filter that does absolutely nothing is ninety percent accurate. Um, and that's probably not what you meant, right? When you said give me an accurate spam filter. Right. Right. So, uh, so that's thinking about accuracy in a very binary method, um, right or wrong. Yeah. 
So it, it turns out that it's more useful to think of accuracy in, in sort of a, a quadrant, a two-by-two two quadrant. Um, and I'll give you the names. The technical names aren't so important um, as the fact that it's, it's two-by-two. Uh, so there's going to be two reasons to be right and two reasons to be wrong. So you need to first define uh, your problem. What are you measuring? And let's say the problem is, is this message a spam message? Right. Okay. So if the message is actually spam and you said it was spam, that's really what you're um, hoping your model can do. We call that a true positive. Okay. Uh, if the message was not spam and you said it wasn't spam, it's what we call a true negative. And it, it seems kind of funny. Like, why am I distinguishing these two things? Again, remember in our base case, um, doing nothing is often, uh, the right choice, right? And we don't want to reward just a, a naive model that, that does nothing. So generally speaking, when we measure accuracy, we don't actually give any credit for true negatives. And again, remember, they're sort of the bulk of the cases here. Wait, wait, wait. So hold up. Yeah. Because it kind of whacks my brain. So uh, it, the, the system labeled it as a spam and it was spam. Yay. Everything happened that I wanted to happen. Yep. The system said it was spam but it wasn't spam. Boo. Okay. So that's a tr uh, true negative. No, no, actually that was not a, a true negative. So a, a true negative <laughs> would be. <laughs> that's all right, Jim. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go through all four quadrants because you hit one of them. Right? And this, is, this goes into why it's important. Um, actually, let's let's set aside the true negatives for, for a minute. And you've really nailed uh, – the reason that we do these quadrants. Uh, what kind of error is, is most detrimental to your users? You've got two choices, right? The email was spam and you didn't say it was, or the email was legitimate and you marked it as spam. Which one of those is worse? Right. It was legitimate and you marked it as spam. A exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's what we would call a false positive. Because we said it was spam and it wasn't. Oh, God. Math people make things so complicated. I just want you guys to say they got it right or they got it wrong. And there's, there's no quadrant. There's just yes or no. But you can't do that, right? Because that's not going to train the system right. It's, it's not as helpful. Right. right? So, so when I review that, that system, um, it's one thing to say, look, your, your filter is wrong 20% of the time. Uh, but I really want to know why was it wrong? What's the kind of mistakes it's making? Oh, um, yeah. That's going to influence how I train it. So it's important to measure these two differences, right? And then the way I update the model is completely based on what kind of mistakes am I making? Mm, okay, that I'm so glad you explained that because that's kind of been messing with my head. And now I see, I get it. And even more important than measuring is, you know, starting out in the beginning, thinking about which kinds of these errors are really, what's the significance of an error, um, and what's the significance of the different kinds of errors, right? And you go, you you do that before you build anything. Uh, yeah. Okay. Are there people that specialize in doing that? Sure. This is this is part of the the data science experience, if you will. Yeah. Right. So here's my question, like. If you're on a product team, hopefully, if you're lucky, you have a quality assessment check somewhere. So shouldn't somebody be checking these things before they go out? 
Sure, absolutely. And and when you you build a model, you are you are testing it, right? So I'm not going to send my spam filter out without testing it. Yeah. But I know I know that any model I build is not going to be 100% accurate. Um, so I'm I'm constantly measuring. Uh, so as I build my model, I'm measuring right how it performs. Uh, and if I'm updating my model every day, then I'm running some sort of measurements every day, and I'm watching the trends. But again, I'm not simply watching an accuracy trend because as we we started in the beginning, the accuracy trend may not tell me very much. But I will certainly be watching the the false positive rate every day, and I'll be yeah. as I influence mo- the model, am I sending this rate up or down? Yeah, this is. Uh such an important thing for us as designers to understand how it, cause it's a really different thing that we're designing for compared to what we were designing before, which is, you know, like transactional websites or any website, any product, any digital experience you make it. And even though it was, you know, a long way from print where you make it and you put it out and you can never change anything. That was a big difference between print and digital. Now I could put it out there, but if I want to change it, I can go back. So I'm not getting gray hair during press checks anymore. And that's great. And that's literally why I came over to digital. But, um, this is taking that even a step further because if I'm making, you know, a website and I get, I use statistical, like, uh, Google analytics or NPS scores to find out like, Oh, my users are having trouble finding this or getting through this flow. Then I have to like, look at all that data, figure out what's happening and then go back and redesign it and then watch it again. But with AI, that you're not, you don't have to put an NPS machine on top of it or Google analytics on top of it because the nature of the thing you're designing has that built into itself. It's just the, it's either successful or not successful. And the fact of like, you're watching these analytical responses, false, negative, false, positive, you're going to get that feedback as you, as it's out there in the world. And this, I think gets to a concept that's hard for, and I think we'll talk about this at a different point, but why you can't just, kick your AI concept or your AI widget out into the world and then never come back and look at it. You have to keep maintaining it. It's never over. Absolutely. And yeah, we'll go, we'll go deeper into that. But as, as you are keeping track of your system, again, you just want to make sure you're, you're measuring these things. So, so Jen, let me bring it back to just another example so we can kind of finish out the quadrant. Uh, do you ever go to the airport? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I do. I, I think about the TSA a lot, and that they also have a, a, a classification problem, and we can apply that same two by two grid to them. Um, so again, our, our baseline for for the, the TSA and the problem they're they're doing is well, they're trying to stop the bad guys, basically, right? Right. And if you think about it in terms of in relative terms, there really aren't that many bad guys, right? I mean, thousands and millions of people travel, and, and how many bad actors are there really? Yeah. Right, so if I replaced all the machines with cardboard boxes, uh, I would be ninety-nine point, you know, a bunch of nines accurate. <laughs> oh, that's frustrating. <laughs> Again, I've but I've kind of missed the point, right? Because all the people who are who are no trouble at all, they're all true negatives, right? So I don't want to give my 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 cardboard box model any credit for that. Right. Um, I, 
my true positive here are all the bad guys I catch. And the, the um, guiding principle behind the TSA is that uh, it's not false positives that are bad. That's, you know, when you get pulled aside for having a water bottle, it's the false negatives, right? They don't want to let any bad guys get through because, well, it's, it's self-evident why we don't want the bad guys get through. Yeah. And you can see the kind of system they designed is very different, right, from, from what the spam filter does. The spam filter works very hard to avoid false positives. We don't want legitimate mail to get trapped. Right. Um, and it's okay if we let a little spam through. For the TSA, it's fine if I pull you over for your water bottle, if I'm, uh, which is a false positive, as long as I'm not letting the bad guys through false negative. The false positive there is the system identified you as a danger person, but you weren't a danger person versus the system identifies you as a danger person and you are a danger person. Absolutely. And, okay. and you can see also how, how they continue to evolve their process, how they're designing for these types of errors or mistakes, if you will. Um, they notice, look, we're pulling a lot of people aside and it's, oh, it's only the water bottle. So, okay, they just take a swab of it and move on, right? They, mm -hmm. they, they may not stop pulling people over, but at least they're trying to minimize the, the time spent there. Yeah. So they're trying to, I mean, the thing that they're going to get the most feedback on is uh, the false positive. The false positives, right? That's the man yeah. getting pulled over. Yeah. They, they've consciously chosen to make that mistake because, look, the, these, these error types are, um, they're related, right? So they're being a little bit too restrictive. And that's why we get too many false positives. But right, the only right. way to fix that really is to, to loosen up, be a bit, more, bit more permissive, and then we have the chance of, of the false negatives, which in this case is catastrophic. Okay, so hey, when people have, when I've been pulled over, <laughs> pulled over to the side of the lane going through TSA, I don't see them pointing, um, you know, visual recognition machine at me, or I may not even have gone is this, when is this happening? Is it when I'm going through the scanner? Is it, you know, they've got a little headset in and there's an eye in the sky above me, or is this like more of a human uh, model that they're thinking about? Yeah. I, I'm talking about a little abstractly. I'm just thinking if you, if you get through security with, um, you know, you never set, you've never been set aside, um, then you're a true negative, right? Oh, okay. So you're talking about our brain algorithms that we give to TSA agents when we educate them on how to be TSA agents. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, cool. Yeah. My brain confidence matrix. So, so, so there you go. We're, we're, we're doing it with, with TSA, with spam filters. And, and again, as you think about these concepts, you're going to find other places that they apply and you can kind of see how the design of those things were influenced by the possible error types. Thinking in this two by two grid is, is kind of a powerful technique. Yeah. Yeah. The like, you have to decide like what is the more impactful outcome that you're trying, you know, is it more, I don't know. Well, I'm just going to erase that part. Yeah. That's, I never thought about it in terms of actual real life human decisions yep. relating to that. So what if there's multiple factors that influence whether a decision is right or wrong? So in, in short, we would try to uh, measure those independently and, mm. and, and measure how we're doing on each single decision. 
and you know improve upon the one that was sort of the, the worst or the most critical uh, and move on from there. If you have a lot of decisions that are combined, uh, generally the, the accuracy kind of multiplies across, right? So if you have three components that are point the ninety percent accuracy, then your overall is something like seventy percent, right? Oh, they probably okay. won't be exactly the same. You'll probably have one that's a lot worse than the others, and that would be the one you'd focus on. So even if you have a lot of variables, you try to like group them into binary categories and then decide which one is most harmful and just fix that one. It's divide and conquer all the way down. It's a very design thinking approach, Andrew. Oh. I'm impressed. Uh, yes. Prioritization. And then we'll do the first thing first. Absolutely. Cool, man. Okay. So we talked about TSA. We talked about spam. Could you tell me a little bit, maybe off the top of your head, like what are, you know, as we are trying to, put AI into products and experiences, like what are some of the things designers might want to think about or anybody building these things might want to like keep an eye on? Sure. Is that sure. Yeah. So, so again, let's think about, uh, let's pick on your, your chat bot or your Slack bot that you made. Cause I think that's a, a pretty interesting example. Um, but when you build a chat bot, it's not always going to understand the user, Right. Um, no matter how good you train it, there's going to be some questions that you don't understand. And there's, there's ways you can build into your dialogue uh, how, how you deal with that. So in, in, a, in a chatbot, I might build, as I finish a conversational flow, could I help you with anything else? And that's a very simple way to address, hey, the user may have asked for three things at once, and I only took care of two of them. Right? Uh, it's a fallback condition. I've identified that, look, I might have made a mistake, uh, so, I'll, so I'll just ask at the end. Okay, yeah, so um, using the bot itself to collect feedback that we can use to improve it. Yeah, and, and even, let's, go, let's use your spam example again. Um, you know, your, your spam filter, when it, it marks something as spam, what do you see when you open that email, right? There's a button that says, this is not spam. Yeah. Somebody had to put that button in there. Oh, that's such a nice example. We love that button. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, so if I'm going to be making decisions based on my, my model, I, it's very helpful for me to be able to say, hey, the model was wrong. Not only do I want to back out of what it's decided, right? I want to move this message from the spam folder to the inbox, but I want to give it a little hint, hey, don't put this one in there again, right? Emails that look like this one are not actually spam. Yeah. I'm going to take us off topic for like, or on a tangent for a second. So I'm picturing, let's picture like a business analytics dashboard, right? We've got some models running and I'm using this dashboard to help uh, predict what, is going to happen in the future so that I can make some decisions now. Mm -hmm. And if this is like a public facing tool, what if there are just some jerks that don't like my company and just come in and give a ton of crappy feedback to my, you know, through my models and yeah. what's the safety valve for that? Right. So, so adversarial, adversarial training here. 
Um, oh, there's a word for it. There, there's <laughs> always a word for it. Great. <laughs> so, so this is this is a great example of why when you get feedback, you may not directly put it back into the product, right? So uh, a lot of spam filters are run for an individual, right? So when I'm training a spam filter, it's actually for me. Um, oh. a, a lot of them are, not all of them. Um, if I'm training something that's shared by others, generally you want to put that feedback into a queue for a review by some sort of um, you know, curator. You, you can take all the training that you've been given and pump it right into your model. But as you've shown, you know, someone could be up to no good or, or more innocently, someone could just not know the correct answer. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a little, it's, it's risky just to, to trust feedback from the wild. Um, you can also take the, the feedback that you've re- received and, and, and run an algorithm over it to see, Hey, the machine kind of agrees with this feedback. Do you want to rubber stamp it? But generally you, you want a human in the loop. Um, for, for most of your feedback. Oh my God. So user feedback is like Wikipedia for models. Like, Hey, here's the thing I think is going wrong. I found it from the general public. And you're like, no, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. And, and, and again, you know, you know, Wikipedia, probably 90% of the edits are good, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah. How do you deal with that 10%? That's, it's a problem that doesn't go away. <sighs> cool, man. Okay, so when you're talking about this kind of stuff, my mind is racing through maybe new patterns and components that we as designers need to think about that are kind of like a step further than what we ever had to think about before. Like not just here's the static state of things, but here's what happens. What happens if the static fails? And I can actually account for that Mm -hmm. here. Yep, absolutely. Okay. That's cool. Huh? So this is all so interesting. And for the people that are listening that are designers or interaction designers, um, I want to make, give them some really real examples about how they could use this idea right now and what they're designing. So obviously we talked about, I made a Slack bot and it's not answering anyone's questions. Um, we know we can do things like, hey, we can make the Slack bot not just answer questions, but ask questions like, hey, was that a good answer or not? And then you can, or you can just thumbs up, thumbs down it. And I see that all the time. So is that valuable feedback? Is that worth doing? It's absolutely worth doing. Yes. Okay. The other thing, um, I can't think of a ton because I just don't think that we've been doing this long enough, but I would definitely challenge the designers out there because I think this is just rich territory for, Hey, nobody's done this yet. You could come up with a bunch of ideas and start that conversation by analyzing and looking at what your, what your product does and trying to think three or four steps out and then working with maybe your data scientists to find out like, Hey, if I could entice a user to give us this kind of feedback, how valuable or not valuable would that be? Would that be a terrible conversation for a data scientist? That, that would be a useful conversation. And, and let me just, um, I'll give one example to, to sort of uh, prime, prime the thinking. Uh, you know, we talked about chat a lot. And is this a helpful response? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah. Uh, and, and ultimately, 
thumbs up, thumbs down is, is a grading on the entire experience, right? But you can break it down a little bit further and say, well, I thought your question was about X. Was it about X or was it really about Y or Z? And that's sort of a classification feedback. Um, you're, you're peeking a little bit behind, behind the algorithm, but that's, that can be more directly actionable um, for the training purposes. It's a little bit more work for your users, so you definitely have to strike that balance. Um, but it's, it's another example of things that you can do. Oh, man, that's the other side of this that god i'm so scared to do those things like I, we have watson products that do that you ask it something it's like hey i think maybe it's this but if not here are like three other things it might be and just by the user clicking on one of those things we now have feedback like that's the thing it should have been but okay. what is user tolerance for this kind of stuff like how far can we take it part of me is like zero far thumbs up and thumbs down is about as much annoying uh, questioning as they're going to handle. But then I think about like people giving reviews on Amazon and Yelp and how out of control they get and they'll give like so much of their time and thinking. So I don't, I don't know. I'm really, maybe it's situational, but I, I'm hoping that there are researchers out there testing these ideas. Or if you're a designer that's coming up with these ideas, go talk to your researcher and ask them to start putting it out there and getting feedback. You definitely have to think about this. You, you can also think about as you, you roll out an AI solution, hey, for my pilot users, I'm going to ask them for a lot of feedback, but I'm going to give them a lot of hand-holding, right? I'm going to thank them profusely. Maybe I'll give them an award for participating. Um, and then as I, as I get better and roll this thing out to broader audiences, maybe I dial down some of the feedback uh, mechanisms, right? So, that, so there are a number of ways to do this. Gamification is something that we see happen a fair amount. Um, so, so again, something to consider, something to design for. Absolutely. So interesting. Now I feel like I want to go find all the examples and make sure I know what I'm talking about. Um, Don't tell yourself short, Jen. Come on now. Oh, come on, Jen. Okay. Well, it's Friday, Andrew, and I feel like we have nerded out pretty well for today. Loving it. Loving it. So I think that's a wrap, unless you've got anything else you want to add. Well, we, we, have to do, we have to do our plugs before we hear that uh, fancy robot. Oh. So where do you find us on Twitter, Jen? Oh, uh, I don't know, Andrew. <laughs> do you know? What's our what's our call sign? AI Zen Podcast, right? Oh, yeah. AI Zen Podcast. I'm not a tweeter. Okay. And then where do you find our podcast like to listen, Andrew? I find it on Apple or, or anywhere I get my podcasts. That's so true. Yes. Anything else we need to plug? Well, we should plug ourselves. Uh, I'll, I'll plug my Twitter at, at Andrew R. Freed. Do yours, Jen. Uh, I'm Jen, and you have to slack me or you have to come to my shack in the woods to find me, one or the other. <laughs> no, you can find me on LinkedIn. Probably the best place. LinkedIn, perfect. All right, now you can do that cool robot. Okay, enter the robot. Everybody, thanks again for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, leave us comments and feedback on what you want to hear more of or less of, and we will try to accommodate your needs. Thanks, Andrew. Talk to you later. Thanks, Jen. Bye. Bye.